Turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll look at our text again. We're going to focus on one word primarily today, as we're going to do in the next several weeks, because this life of the Spirit is really something else. And we want to be sure that we look at the nine aspects or attributes of the Spirit-filled life that Paul addresses so that we're, we can look at ourselves during these, these couple of months and ask ourselves if we're really appropriating the life of the Spirit. Well, let's look at uh, 5, 16 through 26. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I, told, as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So we, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. First thing that we're going to see today again is that the Christian life is life in the Spirit. He says it over and over again. So I say live by the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit, let us keep in line or keep in step with the Spirit. There's a, I think still my favorite book on Christian leadership is called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. If you've not read that little book, uh, can I suggest it to you? Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. In that book, Sanders uh, goes through uh, several essential ingredients of Christian leadership. He talks about how uh, men must be uh, men of vision, men of discipline, uh, men who are good decision makers, men who are patient, men who know how to use their anger. Uh, he, he goes through about 10 or 12 of the really essential traits of effective leadership. But then he talks about the indispensable quality of leadership for Christian leadership. And it's simply this, to be filled with the Spirit. And here's how he, he proves his point. He goes back in the book of Acts, and you see I've got there several texts in Acts listed. And he shows you that the entire movement of Christian leadership is, is led by men who are filled with the Spirit. You begin in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus himself says, Go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? Wait for the gift my Father will give you. Then you will be my witnesses. You will receive the Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. So you can't even be his witnesses until you receive his Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, they receive his Spirit. And then you see that Peter, when he's facing the Sanhedrin, this is cowardly Peter who lied that he even knew Jesus when a little maiden came up to him and said, do you know him? And he said, heck no, I don't know him. Uh, this is Peter who would flee at the rustling of a leaf. He was so cowardly. This is Peter who's standing before the Sanhedrin and telling them, asking them, what's more important to obey you or to obey God? <laughs> and we're told Peter filled with the Spirit, responded to the Sanhedrin. Then you get to chapter 6, and there we see we need some deacons in the church. And who are these men? They're men full of faith and full of the Spirit. And you see Stephen, the first deacon martyr, who's proclaiming Christ, and as he's being martyred, he is full of the Spirit. And he responds in a way that's classically right in line with the way Jesus responded when he was being martyred on the cross of Calvary. You go on through and you see that Philip, who's the one who comes alongside the Ethiopian eunuch on his way to Egypt, and he just the Ethiopian eunuch just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. <laughs> and Philip 
happens to come alongside him just at the right time. The Spirit is the one who tells Philip to run alongside the chariot and talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're told Philip was full of the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. Same thing with the Apostle Paul when he got converted and the scales fell off his eyes and he was full of the Spirit. We find the same thing with, uh, when uh, Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journey. They go out confronting all the powers of evil that are in various places they go. They're full of the Spirit. The whole church leadership is full of the Spirit. So our life is distinctive because not only do we have an alien righteousness by which we are legally justified before God as perfect, we have an alien power working in and through us that enables us to be men of God. And if you, you don't know that power and you're not depending upon that power, then you couldn't possibly be living the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible. The only way that we can even begin to take a step is to take a step in line with the Spirit as the Spirit works through us. So that's the life of the Christian. It is the life of the Spirit. Now, what we want to focus on today is our second major point as we go to verse 22 and bring the microscope in, that the life in the Spirit produces joy, but the fruit of the Spirit, this Spirit-filled life, produces a fruit, and it is joy. Now, first of all, let's notice this, that this joy, our joy, is evident. That is, you can, you can see it. It's, it's a fruit. There are roots of the Spirit that you can't see, but there's the fruit of the Spirit that you can see, and you can see joy. You can see the work of the Spirit in a man's life. Now, the Spirit is like the wind, says the Lord Jesus. Uh, he blows where He will, and you can't see the wind, can you? It just blows. But you sure can see those trees bending over when that wind is blowing. And you can sure see a man bending over, humbling himself before God, and becoming more like Christ when the Spirit is blowing in him. You can, you can see the evidences of the Spirit in his life, and joy is one of those. Now, there are a lot of joy killers in life. Uh, there are a lot of things that discourage us. And we have to be very careful how we talk about this. I was told by, by uh, one of our uh, missionaries in Italy that uh, one, there was an American who was just getting his Italian up to speed. He'd been there about three years, and he had enough of the language he thought he was ready to preach. He, he was a preacher, English-speaking English preacher, but he thought he was ready to preach in Italian. So he decided he was going to preach a sermon on discouragement. Now, the problem with, and those of you who know Italian can, can fill me in on the details of this, but from what I was told, the problem with the word discouragement, it sounds an awful lot like the word passing gas. <laughs> and if you don't pronounce it just right, you're, you're saying passing gas. Well, unfortunately, this preacher didn't get it right. And he got up and he said to his congregation, today we're going to talk about discouragement. And everybody looked at me and he said, no, nah, you look at me funny. Everybody gets discouraged. <laughs> and he said, I've noticed in this congregation that discouragement's a real problem. <laughs> he said, in fact, you know, I could, he looked at a lady in the front row. He said, you look discouraged today. <laughs> so you have to be careful when you talk about discouragement. I'll try to be careful today. There are things that will take away your joy. And one of them is discouragement. We're going to look at this. How do you live a life of joy when all your world is falling down around you? Well, it's because your joy is rooted in something that doesn't fall apart around you. That's what we're going to get to. Now, it's an evident joy in several ways. First of all, it's evident in our daily walk. Look with me. Just go over a couple of books in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. And, of course, this is the great letter on joy, as you know. Paul uses the word joy or rejoice here, I think, about 16 times in this letter. But in Philippians 4, Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. In case you didn't hear me, knucklehead, I'll say it again. I added a few words there. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So he wants to be sure that we get it. And Paul 
pray, you know, offers a benediction that would be full of joy in Romans 15. And Jesus says, I'm going to make my joy complete in you. All these things, the Spirit is given to you that your joy may be complete, a fulfilled joy, a complete joy. That's the whole purpose of what's going on. Alexander McLaren put it this way, seek to cultivate a buoyant, joyous sense of the crowded kindnesses of God in your daily life. Don't you love that phrase? The crowded kindnesses of God. Cultivate a knowledge of that. And there are crowded kindnesses in every one of our lives. So our daily life is one of rejoicing because we simply focus on those things that bring us joy. It's a discipline of the mind. Set your mind on the Spirit. And set your mind on the gifts and the benefits of the Spirit. And as we just sang a moment ago, rejoice ye pure in heart. Here's why. You have Christ. Here's why. Because we're going to our Father's house, Jerusalem the blessed. We're there where we'll be filled with ineffable joy. So rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice in your daily walk. No excuses. No timeouts. No reprieves. Cut yourself no slack. Joy always in every circumstance. Now, if you think I'm talking about giddy happiness, then hang on just a minute. We'll get to what joy really is. But what's being required of us is to ask the Holy Spirit to come in and take over our lives so that there is a genuine joy all the time in every circumstance with no time out in our lives. There's the goal. There's the life, the daily life of the Spirit. Now, notice secondly that joy is predominant in our worship. If you go back through the Psalms, I've just listed a few of the verses. That doesn't get them all by a long shot. Those are just some of my favorites that are in the Psalms. Uh, and, of course, the classic, you know, Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise. Doesn't just say make noise. Make a joyful noise. Sing with joy to the Lord, all the earth, says the psalmist. It's just over and over again. And I tell you what, some guys look like when they go to church, they're going for a root canal. I mean... This has got to be the biggest burden of you, for you on the whole weekly calendar. You know, get your kids up and go to church or sit there and listen to a boring sermon and try to think about your golf grip or something that will give you some pleasure during this. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, it's like the kids feel when they have to go to school on Monday morning. You're feeling that way on Sunday morning. Here's what you got to say. What is wrong with me? Uh, worship is not worship. It's something else. You're perverting a worship experience to something else. When you go either to be bored or you go with a sense of duty or you go with a sense that, hey, I think I'm doing something good here. Maybe God's pleased with this. A, a sense of trying to gain favor with Him. That is not worship at all. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not worship. Worship is the response, the joyful response of a grateful creature who has been redeemed for eternity from all of his stinking sins by an infinitely gracious God who for reasons that cannot be explained happened to have favor on you. That's worship. And it can't be anything but joyful. I'm telling you what, even on Good Friday, kind of the darkest day in the church, worship is not worship if it's not joyful. Even when we shed tears remembering what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, there are also, there's also joy in our hearts because the very pain that he endured was for our eternal benefit. How could we help but be joyful on Good Friday? So all of our worship, your private worship, in your own personal devotions, be sure you're cultivating joy. And I know sometimes at 6.30, it's hard to be joyful. It's hard to sing a hymn like the one we just sang when I'm not even awake yet as Don prayed. But we cultivate joy because that is the life of the Spirit. And what you're saying is, Spirit, come in and take over. Because there's a part of me you haven't taken over yet. That's what we're saying in our worship. Notice thirdly that it's in our suffering. Okay, here's where we get down to the, here's where we get down to the, wrestle it down to the mat. 
You're saying, how can I be happy when my wife just died? How can I be happy when I just learned that my son has cancer? How can I be happy when my body is racked with pain? And I've got all these sufferings. How can I be happy when I see evil around me? That it's just inexplicable. That it's so, so evil and so dark that the only thing that can explain it is, is the demonic world. How can I rejoice in that? Well, leave your finger in Galatians and turn over to Romans 5 and let's just look for a moment at just one aspect of what brings us joy in our suffering. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified, this is verse 1, justified through faith, this is page 1817, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now look at verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now notice he doesn't say, we also rejoice in spite of our sufferings. Or we can rejoice at the same time that we suffer. He doesn't say that. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. He's not a sadomasochist. He's not saying, bring it on, God. You know, hit me with whatever you want to hit me. I love to be beat up. He's not saying that. But he's saying, when God brings those things, we will rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. This is where your perseverance comes from. This is where it's, your faith is strengthened. This is where you're taught to put one foot in front of the other. It's in the gymnasium of your sufferings. And all of us have a different gymnasium where we're getting our workout. You have your particular gymnasium where you're getting your workout. It's unlike mine. Mine's unlike yours. We all have these uh, chronic things that cause us to suffer. And then we have the extraordinary things that come and suffer. They're in our gymnasium and they're designed by God's providence. He's the coach. He's the one that's putting us through the exercises for the day. And I know sometimes if you've ever trained for some athletic contest, either in high school or college or since then, and you have a coach, sometimes you hate his guts. Sometimes you want to fire him. And sometimes you feel that way about God. But the coach is getting you ready for something. And God is getting you ready for something. And therefore, we will rejoice in the sufferings that He brings us by His providence. And we know from the Scriptures that He brings them. So we, because our suffering produces perseverance, look what perseverance produces, character. That's where your character comes from. You don't have character in this life apart from persevering through suffering. And you think about the characters that you admire. Does this not apply to them? Is this not what really made them the character that causes you to admire them and to emulate them? Is this not the way that we're going to have influence with other people? That whenever we tackle our sufferings, that we tackle them with the power of the Holy Spirit, doing it the way that the Holy Spirit would have us do it. So perseverance produces character. What does character produce? Hope. So now we're back to Jerusalem the blessed. Our Father's house. Now we're back to where we're going, the very capital of joy. And we're on our way to the capital city of joy. So our sufferings actually produce hope. They produce what rises up within us, which causes us to set our minds on the eternal reward, which, gentlemen, brings us joy. It's, it's so often true, I find it myself, when something's taken away from me that I value, something in a relationship that's gone, or something in my, in my body that doesn't work the way it used to, or whatever it is, and it brings a little depression or discouragement, or sometimes either way on that Italian word, uh, it, you know, something like that happens to you, and, and it reduces your sensation of joy, I say to myself, Wilson, here's your problem. You had rooted your joy in those things. And you didn't know it until they were taken away. And now look at you. I mean, some, I was saying to someone the other day as I was drinking my fourth cup of tea, I said, some of the staff around here say that, you know, if, 
someone took the caffeine out of Wilson, all you'd have is a pair of shoes and a hat. <laughs> and basically, what, I, what I, I'm learning through life is that oftentimes, if you take away the circumstances of pleasure around me, away from me, sometimes I feel like all you'd have is a pair of shoes and a hat. Where's the joy? Is it only in the things? Or your, is it only in your health? Is it only in other people and your relationship to them? Is it only in your possessions? Where's your joy? Well, you don't know how much you're depending upon those things for your joy until they get taken away. And this is part of the workout, gentlemen. This is the part, this is, these are the moments in your life when your, your focus is taken off those things to bring you pleasure and joy. And your focus is reoriented toward Jerusalem the blessed and toward the presence of the Lord with whom you can have a very fruitful relationship, if you will. And his side of it is perfect. He's a perfect relater. He's a perfect gift giver. And he's waiting for you to get into him and to drive your joy from him. And when your sufferings come, this is what is happening. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice also, believe it or not, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because these things are making us more like Christ. If you look, for example, in the text I put there, Hebrews 12, 2, there you have it. We're told about Jesus himself in his sufferings. For the joy set before him, the joy of the crown, the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the ascension, the joy of reigning at his Father's right hand, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So he endured the agony of the cross and he mocked the shame of being spread eagle naked before the world, treated like the world's worst criminal. He mocked that shame because he could see his exalted glory three days later. And gentlemen... Paul says, look, here's the definition of the time in which we live. It's the beginning of the dawn. It's just like when you come to amen. And it's not as dark as it is at midnight. But it's a little too dark to walk without stumbling along if you're not very careful. But you can tell that by the time you get out of amen, it's going to be day. And the time in which we live is like the time we have at amen. You come in and it's dark. But you can see the glimpses of light out there. You know it's just a moment ahead of us. And by the time we get out of here, it's day. That's the definition, says Paul in Romans 13. That's the kind of time we're living in, right at the beginning of the dawn. So all you have to do if you're in pain, just wait till amen is over. <laughs> I mean, just wait. And you walk out and all the blessings of joy are there before us. That's the way that men think when they're full of the Spirit. And that's the reason that we rejoice in our sufferings. Whatever it takes us to get ready, to go out there and get ready for that day, to enjoy all the privileges of life, that's what we'll do here. And it's just what all of life is about. We're getting ready for the day of great light. So in our suffering, we rejoice. Now, notice not only this, for, but fourthly, in our persecution. And Jesus himself personally makes this clear when he's talking about the people who are blessed of the Lord. It's amazing that in this last beatitude, he talks about, hey, you want to really get blessed? Then get yourself good and persecuted. <laughs> he says, blessed, this is Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you and people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so when someone makes fun of you because you're a Christian, rejoice. Be glad. You've just been put in the Hall of Fame with the prophets. Your, your portrait just went up right next to Isaiah, right on the other side of Jeremiah. You're up there on the wall. Rejoice because you're numbered among the prophets now and you are the prophets. And that's what the Spirit does to us. It makes us prophets. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, said Joel. And that's the very text Peter quoted when he came and preached on the day of Pentecost. We've become prophets. And so when, you, when the world treats you like a prophet, they killed them all. When the Lord treats you like a prophet, 
rejoice and be glad. So you see, there's something spectacular about this joy. It's not just rooted in the moment-by-moment sensual pleasures that you're deriving from various aspects of your life. It's something transcendent. It ought to give us a hint about joy, which leads us to be our joy is profound. Our joy is profound. Now, if you'll look, uh, or you can just listen if you want. Uh, John 15, this is the upper room discourse, and uh, where Jesus talks about the comforter being given to them at his departure. In fact, he, he explains to them why his departure is actually a good thing. Can you imagine that? You've gotten to know Jesus personally in the flesh for three years, and he's trying to, trying to convince you that it's a good thing that you're not going to have him anymore. <laughs> yeah, good luck, Jesus. But he's right. And they came, out to, came to find out later he was right. He says, if I depart, I will send to you the counselor. Now, Jesus said, you were walking with me. Now you're going to walk in me. We're going to be closer than we were even when I was here in the flesh. So it's a good thing that I leave. And in chapter 15, verse 11, uh, he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It is a profound joy. Now, let's look uh, at the first thing about this joy. There are really two major things I want us to see about the profundity of this joy. Number one, our joy is not just worldly happiness. We've got to make a distinction here. So let's look, first of all, at the negative. It is not just worldly happiness. The reason I say that is that in Matthew 13, when Jesus is telling the parable of the soils, uh, he, he says, look, there are three soils. The first one is like the, the person who, who, who gets the word, but he never really listens to it, and the bird comes and takes the seed away. Uh, the, the second one is like a, a shallow soil where the, the plant springs up with joy. But then persecutions come, represented by the sun beaming down on it. It has shallow soil, and so it withers. And so he's, he's saying that's what the person is like who has this initial joy in his conversion, real excited, very shallow, first time he gets persecuted, I'm out of here. That's what happens when you delude yourself. You thought you became a Christian, but really what it was was that the other people in your medical firm were in that church too, and so you faked it. <laughs> or some of your potential legal clients were in that church, and so you wanted to be with them, so you faked your conversion. I mean, I had a lawyer tell me this. He ended up becoming a, a, an elder in the church I was serving, not here, elsewhere. He says, I just, this was Lookout Mountain. He said, I just joined that church because I was a new lawyer and I wanted some clients. <laughs> he said, after I joined, I found out, uh, no, he, he, uh, he said, I wanted to join that church, and he said, and I found that I couldn't join it. Because the pastor wouldn't let me. He said, I couldn't imagine such a thing. I'm here, a young lawyer in this community, and that pastor doesn't want me to join his church. And he said, I found out you had to really know Christ to join that church. And he got converted through wanting simply to be associated with the church for, for business purposes and found out there's something much deeper. Well, there are a lot of people who just kind of affiliate and as lightly as possible that they can get by with. Thus, the dour look on a Sunday morning when they actually have to go to church with their wife. Uh, and then they find out there's really something profound. There's something mysterious. There's something personal. There's something really deep. There's a calling in their, that's upon their lives that is really serious and ultimate. And they find that out through their initial hypocrisy. That often happens. And that's what we pray happens to every one of us. Because there is a joy that is greater than what the world has to offer. Here's the way David puts it in Psalm 4, verse 7. He says to the Lord, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. So David is saying to the Lord in his gratitude, Lord, look at them at their parties with all their wine and their big vats full of grain, all their food. He says, You have given me a greater joy than that. So from the very beginning, when you look in the Scriptures, you want, to find, you want to be sure that you understand that this joy we're talking about is greater than what the world offers. Now, let me say this. 
we, we can learn from the world too. Sometimes I find that the world seems to be more joyful than the church is. Well, the church ought to be at least as joyful as the world. So it's, it, the joy we have is not merely worldly happiness, but it's at least as great as that. Let, let's look at some of the things we can learn from people who didn't profess to be preachers here. I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, to be happy, this last sentence on his quote, is to condition circumstances instead of being conditioned by them. Emerson's saying, take over, man. Don't let the circ- don't get under the circumstances. Get over your circumstances. That's a worldly thought. And it's true that some of the joy you derive in life is having some control in your life. Well, well, Christians have an answer for that. But sometimes Christians allow themselves to go below the level of even worldly wisdom on how to be a happy man. Notice what Buddha said. Your happiness doesn't decrease by sharing it. <laughs> you can share happiness. It actually increases your happiness when you make other people happy around you. Christians could take a book out of the, uh, take a page out of that book. Well, how about George Bernard Shaw, the great atheist? He says the last sentence there, I am of the opinion that my life belongs to a community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to, to do for it what I can. So George Bernard Shaw said, said I'm just going to give myself to the community of people. I'm going to try and make their lives better. And that's where his joy was coming from. Well, great. We can learn from that. Look at Helen Keller, who also is not a believer, as far as I know. She says, true happiness is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. Get a purpose in your life. You know, Peter Drucker says two things you really need in your business and in your personal life. You need to be able to answer two questions. Number one, what's business? Number two, how's business? Two very important questions. What's business and how's business? And most guys never get started. They don't know what business is. Some people are actually in business and they don't know what their business is. They think their business is to make a widget. Can I remind you this morning before you go out, your business is to make money. This is the bottom line. And some people forget that. I was in a business, the steel business. They thought they were in the steel making business. Bad mistake. (laughs) You're in the business of taking your profits and reinvesting them for some more profits. That's what you're in business for. That's what the stockholders hope you're in business for. You're not in the steel business. And some people don't know what their business is. Your business is to glorify the Lord. That's your business. It's not all these other things that you think is your business. Your business is to glorify the Lord. How's business? (laughs) So, we, we learn here that Helen Keller had business. She had a purpose, at least the way she defined it. Bertrand Russell, here's another great atheist. The happiness that is genuinely satisfying is accompanied by the fullest exercise of our faculties. There's some truth to this, isn't there? It's called self-actualization, Abraham Maslow would say. It's using the things that you have in your life. It's expressing them. It's putting them into service. There's some truth to this. FDR said, happiness is not the mere possession of money. Hey, good insight there. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort. Do you think FDR had any creative efforts? Boy, one of the most creative presidents we had. Well, I guess the most creative in the 20th century anyway. And he's saying, look, it's not in making money, it's in achieving things. All right? So, Even the pagans sometimes have wisdom that Christians are not using. You'll notice in the Proverbs, remember when we studied the Proverbs, that Solomon took some Proverbs out of Egypt and out of other neighboring countries, and they ended up in the book, in the Bible, because they were true. So wherever you can get truth, get it. If you can get it from George Bernard Shaw, get it. Get it from Winston Churchill, get it. Abraham Lincoln, give it. Abraham Lincoln says... I imagine that people are as happy as they really want to be. That's a good word. But what we're saying in the scriptures is our joy is much deeper than this. It's much better than this. It includes all this, but it goes to an entirely different level. Here's another quote I've given you here from a man named uh, Dr. David Myers who's written a number of things on happiness. And there are some outstanding things you could learn from this book, The Pursuit of Happiness. 
I didn't list them for, here for you, but he also shows the, uh, the mistakes people make about happiness. Things like, for example, that money will make you happy. Uh, and it really, it, studies show it doesn't. Now, there's a certain level of survival that does affect a person's sense of well-being and a sense of happiness. But even with, it's true with unbelievers and believers alike, money really doesn't do it. Now, some of you have enough of it and you've had it a long enough time. You're going, mm-hmm. Some of you have never had it and you're going, huh? <laughs> uh, or you've, you've tried to get it and you've just about worn yourself out and you realize, you know, really, this is not making me happy. Why am I doing this? Uh, and for some uh, of you, of course, money ends up just being, it's just a scorecard on the uh, game of achievement. And you have more than so-and-so, and so you achieve more than that person did, and so it you know, elevates your pride. So money is just a scorecard. Or some of you really like to gain money because you like to have the influence that goes with it. Uh, so it but those things that are attached to the money also, uh, we find in people who really study these things, it really doesn't make that much difference. And what you find is that the richer nations, if you, uh, there have been extensive studies done by Dr. Myers and others. If you compare the wealthier nations to the two-thirds world, the poorer world, we're not happier than they are. Very interesting. But here are the things Myers says that really did make a difference. In their study, some, you know, more than a negligible difference in people's sense of happiness. Now, this is not among Christians. This is among all population. But having fit and healthy bodies. Having a fit and healthy body makes you a little happier than if you don't. Uh, a realistic goals and expectations. If you have unrealistic goals, you're just setting yourself up to be unhappy. And some of you do. Some of you are just never satisfied with anything you can accomplish. And I'll tell you where that comes from. Usually it's because you never satisfied your dad. And so you're still hearing his voice. You don't even think about it, but he's still controlling you. He's still telling you you're a louse and you got to do this and you got to do that and you're hoping someday you can satisfy him and that becomes your own conscience now and now you can't even satisfy your own conscience and you're killing yourself. And your dad's still controlling you and sometimes he's even gone, long gone, still controlling you uh, because you have unrealistic expe expectations that have come from somewhere in your background. Positive self-esteem makes people happier. Feelings of control. We mentioned that earlier in one of the, one of the uh, uh, quotes said here. Optimism, a general optimism about life. Let's just face it. Those of you who have a more sanguine personality genuinely are more happy in life. Sorry, those of you who are melancholy, but your, your levels are going to be a little bit lower, generally speaking, naturally. Outgoingness, those who are extroverted tend to be a little happier than those who are introverted. Sorry about that. Supportive friendships in a particular way that enable companionship and confiding. So if you have someone who will stick with you as a brother, someone that you can share private things with, confidentialities, someone that you can confide in, your happiness level is going up. A socially intimate, sexually warm, glad he put that in there. I'm going to send these notes to my wife. Equitable marriage, uh, that makes people happier. So if you're single, uh, you're Happiness rates are very close to married rates, but they might be a shade below. And certainly if you've been widowed, uh, then that takes your happiness level down normally. Uh, challenging work and active leisure, punctuated by adequate rest and retreat. Boy, we could talk four months on that topic. And then lastly, a faith that entails communal support, purpose, acceptance, outward focus, and hope. Now that's happiness from a secular point of view a sense of well-being, a gladness in being alive. That's what studies show that those things contribute to it. But now what we're going to show is that the joy of the Holy Spirit trumps all those things because it goes much more deeply. Turn to our second point. If joy is not just worldly happiness, what is it? Our joy is rooted in God's joy. God actually is joyful. And our joy is sharing His joy. It is the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. 
God lives in us. And his joy is radiating through our melancholy little miserable lives. Because he's infinite in his power. And my joylessness is finite and weak. And he triumphs over me. And he radiates through me. Even with all of my weakness. Look at God's joy. First of all, he delights in creation. And this classic verse in Psalm 104 kind of says it all. It kind of picks up on the language of Genesis 1 where God saw all that he had made and said, it is very good. And he took the Sabbath to enjoy it. That's the Lord. He made it. It was good. And he was enthroned on the Sabbath day. And he delighted in all that he had done. And in Psalm 104, verse 31, the psalmist says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So it's not just that we look around at what he's made and we say, This is beautiful. Gentlemen, God is in heaven looking at all that he has made, all the galaxies, the the. <laughs> the unfathomable vastness of his universe. And he says, it is good. He delights himself in it. He's joyful in what his hands, his invisible hands have made or what he has made by simply speaking a word and it came into being. He delights in it. And so when you look at his creation, don't just delight in it from a scientific perspective. Delight in it from a theological perspective. My father loves this. And that's where our joy comes from. Notice secondly, and really I think more prominently in the scriptures, he delights in our salvation. And this is an amazing thing. Zephaniah says he rejoices over us with singing. This is amazing. You don't rejoice over you with singing unless you're narcissistic. <laughs> I know there are a few of you maybe <laughs> Who's singing in the shower? Oh, self, you're so wonderful. <laughs> but God, when, he, when the ransom come into the, the city, Jerusalem, the blessed, he's the one singing and dancing over us. Look what I've got, these men. I saved them. I rescued them. And look, they've been transformed in the very likeness of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He delights in this. And when we think about it then, we shape our whole mentality to be his mentality. And when we go to church, and I just, I just came back last night from a two-day trip out west, not enjoying myself, in church meetings. Church meetings. I, I turned this thing down three times. I don't want to be on that committee. I refuse to chair it. Don't want to do it. I don't have time. Well, uh, brother, we, we really think you need to do this. Three times. And I finally realized I was being Peter. <laughs> so I said, okay. Church meetings. Church meetings. You ever been to a church meeting? Yeah. And uh, some people, when they think about church, they think about church meetings. And if you, you know, if that's your whole life, you know, being on a church staff, and you think of church, if you're not careful, you think of church meetings. Well, let me tell you what God is saying we, we must think about when we think about church. We must think about all of the massive accomplishment of our Father. That took a guy like you and a guy like you and a guy like you. And he converted you. <laughs> and he completely transformed you. And he's making you greater than the angels so that these glorious angels are going to be your house servants. And when we look at church, we must realize what it is he's done. And when we think about church, think about him and the joy that he takes in his people and that what you see now in the feebleness of the church as we attempt to sort of gather together and act like the people of God and seek to reflect his glory. Gentlemen, this is just the beginning. He's just beginning to get us together. One day he's going to just destroy everything that opposes us. He's going to lift us up to the glory of his right hand. He's going to exalt us like he has his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all going to go, wow, what a church. 
That's what we think of when we think of church. We think of our father's delight in what his son has accomplished for his father. And his son will hand over the church to his father as the last and greatest gift, the remnant that has come out of the earth to be preserved for his father's glory. That's what the church is. And you see this especially in Luke chapter 10. And you can look at this text later. But it's the text where Jesus has sent out the 70 two by two. And he sends them into Samaria where the mamas had told him never to go because these people are wicked. You don't go into Samaria. He sends them straight into Samaria, every town and village, two by two, to proclaim the kingdom and to heal their sick and to cast out their demons. And they come back after their first little jaunt and they go, Jeez. <laughs> oh, no, actually, they said, Jesus. <laughs> they said, this is amazing. The demons are subject to us. I mean, we've seen you kick them in the rear end. We've seen you exercise them from people. But we exercised them. We cast out demons. We're, and Jesus said, uh, hang on, I know. Even as I sent you out, I saw the powerful one fall from his throne, the Satan fall from his throne of power. I know. I've got power over him. I've given you that power. He says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you see, Jesus is teaching them how to be joyful. Even in spiritual ministry, when you see something going on, you can tie all your joy up into that. I'm being a fruitful minister. Therefore, I will be a joyful man. Hang on just a minute. Don't rejoice that you have spiritual fruit. Get your joy really focused. Your names are inscribed forever in the record of God in heaven, and he's preparing a place for you, gentlemen. You root your joy in a trans-temporal location. Nobody can mess with it. Nobody can diminish it. Nobody can take it away. It's safe and secure and it's real. And so he says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then when you think it couldn't get any better in this text, there's even a greater joy than the benefits and the rewards that are coming to you through faith when you get home. And here's how it goes. Jesus then turns from them and turns toward heaven itself and begins to speak to his Father. And in the only place where we are told in the Scripture about Jesus' joy, it's here. And the Bible says he was full of joy. And he spoke to his Father. And he rejoiced before his Father because these things are being revealed not to the wise and the learned, but that they're being revealed to little children. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the, the Father but the Son and those to whom He chooses to reveal Him. And Jesus' greatest joy is the salvation of these little children who didn't come to know God by attainment or by human enlightenment or by great learning or by human achievement, but by a total gift from the Father. And thereby Jesus is showing us our greatest joy is simply delighting in His joy. We delight to see the Lord Jesus Christ light up with joy at the work of His Father's hands, not only in creation, but in this mighty work of redemption, which is honoring and glorifying and exalting the One who made us in the first place. That's Christian joy. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul, writing the letter to the Philippians from prison says over and over again, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I will not allow anything in this broken, a sinful, adulterous world or in this body of flesh keep me from sharing the joy of my Father in heaven. 
because he has accomplished the greatest works ever in creation and redemption, and I will delight myself in that. That's the reason that our joy is not merely a worldly happiness. It certainly envelops all of these great words of wisdom from FDR and other people. It envelops all of that. But it goes infinitely beyond it. And when you really get to know someone and see how they respond to their circumstances, you find really, if they're a believer and a follower of Christ, that they're really not responding ultimately to their circumstances. Ultimately, they're responding to God. In every circumstance, they're not responding to the circumstance. In every circumstance, they're responding to their joyful, triumphant, gracious Father. And that's the reason they never get discouraged. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us because many of us in this room are facing deep problems and many reasons that we could be discouraged. And many joy killers have come into our lives. And sometimes there are several of them and we don't know how to beat them down and get rid of them. We pray, God, that you will minister to our hearts today so that we may rise up over them regardless of what they are. That you will help us to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things of earth. That you'll help us to set our minds on the Spirit and not on the flesh. That you'll help us to set our minds on your joy and not our worldly happiness. That your joy may be our joy and that we may demonstrate to a watching world and even to the angels that God has really saved a people. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.